Well, my sermon's not going to be that long. <laughs> I have in my hand the address to the Omaha airport. <laughs> Check to buy some fly spray for that front row. <laughs> I doubt the sincerity of the Bellevue group bringing its claque up here to cheer for them. <laughs> go back to the words of an old philosopher many years ago, a fellow we called Henry Mencken, who edited the Baltimore Sun, and he said that the distinguishing sign of a moron is his love for noise. <laughs> My name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. And by God's grace and the facility of Alcoholics Anonymous, should I stay sober until next Wednesday, I will be 31 years in this society. One of the terrible things that bothers me, the ego that I have, is that I cannot take credit for a minute of it. <laughs> it didn't come about from any of my wisdom that he so insultingly referred to. As I look at this crowd, I couldn't help but quote another philosopher many years ago, a fellow by the name of Dizzy Dean, who used to <laughs> used to broadcast uh, baseball games and sit and drink brew along with him. I met Dizzy and knew him, and he loved the brew. Sometimes he'd get carried away with himself. And one day he was broadcasting a baseball team and looked out in front of him and he said, you know, it's amazing to me how much room there is out in left field. That's it. <laughs> hell of a lot of room out there. At the 
we'll be serious for a while, and I'm I'm uh, the same old lovable AA member that you've known forever. I have depths of insincerity that have never been tapped. But this experience that he referred to, this conference, I'm going to say something to you honestly. I've been hacking these things for many years, but there's been a certain feeling here like I have not experienced before, and I cannot quite put my finger on the way this convention has gelled up in the attitude of the people. And I would say to the newcomer, who's sitting out there, that you have been subjected to probably the best of Alcoholics Anonymous. You're very fortunate to be afforded these people. You have, up until now, you have listened to the experience of 115 years of sobriety. These people that have gotten up and shared with you. I'm going to play around a little bit. How many people are there in here who are less than six months sober or making your first conference? Stick them up. Good job. You are the only people that I'm envious of. To live and begin on an adventure like which there is none other. And to be filled with the expectancy and hope and coming from that never-never land of alcoholism and to be thrust in this society and all of the love that has been afforded at this convention. So let's uh, visit with these new people who have come here. I've only got one story to tell, and it's mine, and it hasn't changed in 31 years. I have neither added to or taken from it, and it's mine. Uh, I don't know, today, you know, A's getting so fashionable now, you know. I was up in Westchester County and talked, and those people were sitting there scratching themselves with their riding crops. <laughs> and, uh, but it is, it's getting real fashionable. We used to worry about the stigma on alcoholism, and now we have to worry about keeping out the social climbers. And, uh, <laughs> Alcoholism has become very fashionable. Everybody's in on the act. I've just come back from Hollywood where they're writing the script for next year's soap operas out there. I've always been very interested in those. And they're putting alcoholics into the plot out there. We have just replaced two bad ovaries and one homosexual out there. <laughs> Uh, 
But it's the, it's the thing now. Alcoholism is very, everybody wants to get in on the act, you know. It's not near as bad. We used to worry about the stigma on alcoholism. And uh, when I came there, it was quite a thing. We used to be terribly ashamed, and it's not that way anymore, as bad as it was. Oh, there's still a stigma on it. There's still a terrible stigma on it. I have a, give you a good example of it. I have a nephew, or my wife does, <laughs> who is a psychiatrist down in Dallas, Texas. And then she has another nephew in San Francisco who's a homosexual. And do you know that my people brag on them more than they do on me? <laughs> and I'm an alcoholic. So you see, it's where you start from in this thing. So if you come in AA to make any marks, well, forget it. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. Is anybody here that when they were taking aptitude tests in high school, put on the bottom line, my ambition is to be an alcoholic. I don't think so. Man, I got enough stuff there to start counseling. I get too old of that. I don't use these notes, but it's just like that bottle of whiskey that used to be under the bed. The satisfaction of knowing that it was there. <laughs> because when you get my age, you start leaking up here. <laughs> and it's only a short jump from humility to senility. <laughs> And then people are, are terribly worried about what caused them to be an alcoholic. God knows I meant to come up with 15,000 answers, you know. And it would be a pitiful thing for me to find out exactly what caused me to be an alcoholic because I don't have time to start over and do it another way. <laughs> I would hate to find out that I had... But everything that bothers us is taken care of in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a big blue one here. I'd like you to see it. It's going to catch on in AA one of these days. says in the book, it tells us so very simply, Knox Shieldworth tells us why we're drying. I'll tell you in a few minutes. But now the day has come and everybody wants to identify. The kids out of the 60s, they got to identify, you know. They just must identify. Let me say something to you. If you can identify with some of you, both of you can lay down and die if you don't find a solution to your problem. It's that simple.
Years ago in general service, they had a pamphlet called 44 Questions. Some of you may, I think they still have it. It's a little pamphlet. Got a lot of little innocuous questions in it about your alcoholism. One of them, I think, is, you know, did you gargle with too much laboris? <laughs> or did your wife give you that look today? Little things that did not quite fit my alcoholic problem. And I saw a need for this, so out of my sheer brilliance, I have contrived some questions here that I think you don't need 44. Let's see if we can identify. Have you ever had the roof of your mouth sunburned? Have you ever been arrested while in jail? <laughs> Have you ever been run over by your own car while driving? <laughs> Have you ever had malfunction of the zipper? They used to call me Rusty. <laughs> that's a that's a terminal illness that finally ends up as pink shoelace. Have you ever woke up with a circus midget in bed with you? <laughs> this is what they call a short form ceremony. Did you hear about that midget that was thrown out of the nudist colony because he was going around getting his nose in everybody's business? <laughs> I believe we're going to identify with you. Have you ever done the Tennessee Waltz in a straight jacket? <laughs> Here's a good one. Has your Alanon ever dropped a hot electric cord in a bathtub? <laughs> This is the last one. This is the one that separates the men from the boys. Oh, you can't say that out in Hollywood, though. <laughs> they do it with a broomstick out there. 
Here's one. Have you ever woke up in the morning feeling rather delicately with the brown whimpers? <laughs> and, and lose your glasses and wash your teeth with preparation A. <laughs> I think we're going to identify with some people here, you know. This is the kind of an alcoholic I was. I was not, and I get so sick of people standing behind this podium and trying to make a dainty illness out of alcoholism. It is a terribly undainty illness. And some of the girls get up here and tell their stories, and every time they tell it, it gets nicer. And you would think that they did all their drinking in one room and somebody shot it to them through the keyhole, but they're not watching. I'm waiting for some of those old broads I drank with. That's the kind of a drunk I was. I didn't want to be drunk. Tried everything on earth, for God's sake, to get out of the dilemma that I didn't know I had. Tried everything. Tried uh, psychiatry. And I found out that psychiatry is the art of picking the pocket through the scalp. <laughs> read everything that Freud ever wrote. I really did. Even in his last days. He did, incidentally, make one good contribution. In his last dissertation on a thing called the question of lay analysis, he said, please hear this, anyone who would try to treat anyone else for an emotional problem who had not experienced it themselves should be arrested and i found out he didn't have any willpower so i left him Freud didn't he couldn't quit smoking. Died with throat cancer after many operations. He did. And I don't like people that haven't got any willpower. <laughs> I had a psychiatrist. I was at a seminar not so long ago, and this skull jockey <laughs> said to me, Mr. Lee, what is the difference between an alcoholic and a non-alcoholic? God, that's a good question. That takes a lot of work. And I finally answered him and I said, you know, I believe that alcoholics drink more than non-alcoholics. <laughs> and then he was undaunted, whatever that means. And he asked me another question. He said, why is it 
that non-alcoholics when they drink don't become alcoholics and I said that's the easiest question I've ever answered they do not have any willpower <laughs> you gotta be gutsy to get where we are takes a lot of stamina, dedication, and concentration to get where we are. Gave up Freud, gave up psychiatry, and I tried yoga for a while. And that meditation is just wonderful stuff if you got enough pork wine to go with it. <laughs> and I was doing good with yoga till I came to the part where you stand on your head. And all of my pills fell out of my pocket. <laughs> and uh, then I tried religion. And I would love to say here, he just read you in chapter 4 that Alcoholics Anonymous is not a religion. Sometimes I wished it were. Then I could shout and promise my way into sobriety. <laughs> and then I wouldn't have to work them damn steps. <laughs> but I never did quite understand it. I went to a little country church when I was seven years old. And there was a big plow hand up there snorting out his nostrils. And he said to me, young man, what you got to do is to get ready to die. And I thought, that don't make any sense. It just got here. You know? <laughs> what did he just read up here? If a new code of morals was all we needed, are to be, and I love this, philosophically comforted. I needed to be philosophically comforted when I came in here this morning, for God's sake. But it is not a religion under any stretch of the imagination. God, I tried everything. But we go back to what Dr. Stiltworth said, and it's so cockeyed simple that we geniuses just sail right over it all the time. <laughs> Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And you know those psychiatrists just had me convinced that I drank because my mama put me on the pot backwards. <laughs> Silky, and two paragraphs took the whole picture of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the next sentence reads that after a time. It's kind of like where it says in the scripture, you know, and it came to pass. <laughs> and I'm glad it did. I'm glad it didn't come to stay, you know. <laughs> after a time, even though he admits that it is injurious and sees others drinking with impunity, he gets to a state where he cannot differentiate 
the true from the false. And the third sentence says this. He thinks, and goddamn, that's dangerous for any of us. Because <laughs> we're working with a crippled instrument. <laughs> he thinks that his alcoholic life is the only one, is the only normal one. Hell, I used to think it was normal to get up and throw up every morning, you know, to get away. that's the way of life. Used to rent a hotel room with twin beds, one to sleep in, one to puke in, just that kind of He cannot differentiate the true from the false, and he thinks this condition is a totally normal one. Now we go to page 23 of the book Alcoholics Anonymous for continuity's sake, and it's one of the most insulting things to a genius like me that you have ever heard. Most of the things that have helped me in Alcoholics Anonymous have first made me mad. Bill gets into a little dissertation over on page 1920 and starts describing the different types of alcoholics. And he pretty soon sees the futility of this. And he draws himself up short, and on page 23, he says that these observations would be purely academic if the drunk didn't take that first drink. Therefore, he says, the alcoholic's problem centers in his mind. And a drunk don't like for you to talk about his head at all. He's terribly. He lets you talk about some other parts of his anatomy and even brag about them. But a drunk just don't want you to talk about his head. Therefore, the alcoholic's problem centers in his mind rather than in his body. And I've read all the promises in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and it made an, I like this word, in-depth study <laughs> of them. And there is no place in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous where it promises you that you'll ever come unwarped. <laughs> You've had it up here. <laughs> and if you think you're going to think your way out of alcoholism, you're going to be working with a crippled instrument. That's all there is to and that's not the way we do it. That's not the way we do it. I started drinking uh, at age 17, purely and simply, innocently enough, to be one of the boys. I was accepting a group of boys, six boys one night, and uh, took that, as they used to say in the old movie scenes, that fatal drink. And of those 
seven of us who were still there. I know most of these fellows, and they're still alive. And that drink I took that night did something to me that it did not do to these other six fellows. I have no explanation for it. Have none. Nobody's ever come up with an adequate explanation for my alcoholism that night. Now I know those other fellows, and they still remain in that realm of, shall we say, where is that nebulous realm? Uh, social drinking. I never did drink socially. Took a little morphine socially a couple of times. <laughs> and it is my contention, this is only my idea, and you can believe it with me or not, but I still say that alcoholic or non-alcoholic, that you can take the most pious and unctuous old sister out of the church and slap about eight slugs of that gallow in her that we used to use, and she's going to become unsocial as hell. <laughs> it's that way. But with him, it's not repetitive, and with me, it is. And I went back to it again and again. I knew it began to do its job. I used alcohol, USC in the beginning. It gave me a relief. And that word's in our book a number of times. It took me away from the wall and let me be a part of instead of apart from. Only for a short few minutes. This first exhilaration, this first encounter only lasted for a short time. And then after that it was held to pay. But our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, tells us that the drunk has a bad memory. It says in there that the alcoholic cannot remember the pain of even a week ago. And I went back to it again and again and again. I remember that feeling. God, if you had what I had, it was something. A few short minutes of the indescribable omnipotence that we have in that exhilaration. And it leads us back again and again and again. It wasn't compulsive. I just lay in the background there. But the minute I took a drink, alcohol brought two things to me, and that was sophistication and intellectuality. I got them both out of the bar, and the little town I lived in was too small immediately, and I, I live in Tyler, Texas down there. Nobody knows where it is, and it's just as well. <laughs> We've got one yellow page in the telephone book. <laughs> Nobody ever goes to Tyler. No, our population's made up of people who have just been stranded there. <laughs> so I went to, of all places, on East Texas Cloud. I went to California and ended up in, of all places, in Hollywood. Where else? 
does his genius go? And I became an understudy. Now, this will rip you. I became an understudy to one of the more eminent designers of ladies' lingerie. <laughs> you can find Jewish fellow took me in East Texas clod and spent a lot of money on my education. And in looking back on it, it was a golden opportunity that a lot of people don't get. I have a wonderful future behind me. <laughs> this is why you cut those soft, silk, sleazy, intimate things that the women wear, you know. You gals got a pinch. I ain't been out there in a long time. And, uh, God, it was a wonderful thing. You got models. I had, at one time, I had 104 models. To my own very own, you know. <laughs> There's an old saying in Greek mythology, whom the gods would destroy, they give them everything they want. <laughs> well, We've got a step now, Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the second one, where it infers that you might have a gopher in the garden. <laughs> if you cut a bunch of brassiers with three of them places in them, you're nuts. <laughs> I told a psychiatrist about that, and he said it was just wishful thinking. Needless to say, I cut myself out of that wonderful opportunity. I'll let my ego run around. In the year 1938, I put the first pair of slacks on a gal called Marlena Dietrich and started a trend that I see here today that has not gone away. Up until that time, women wore dresses. And I've always resented what I did, but no <laughs> And this fellow that I work for, a rather whimsical Jewish fellow, and one morning he came to me, he told me, he told me a thing that a drunk can't stand. We alcoholics cannot stand these words. You can't drink, he said to me. We don't like that in any form. We don't like, don't do this. We're a rebellious lot, aren't we? We're recalcitrant. <laughs> I was very recently up in the University of Illinois making a fine talk. <laughs> and the building was about this wide. And I looked over as I talked, like I am now, and I looked at a sign over on the wall in big black bold letters. It said, don't. And I'd talk for a little while, my head go run back <laughs> It said, don't take the dishes out of this hall. <laughs> I got a report to you, got two of them damn dishes at home. <laughs> Thank you.
absolutely no collectible value. <laughs> but he said to me, don't take the dishes out of the hall. Alcoholics Anonymous to be dignified. <laughs> so the Jew boy came to me one morning, rather whimsical way, said, Good morning, Joe. You're fired. <laughs> he was that way, a real whimsical sort of a fellow. <laughs> And he said, he, he's rather observing, he said, uh, some good comes out of everything. And I thought, what the hell can it be now? <laughs> and he said, uh, the way you handle those scissors, if you'd have been a rabbi, you'd have destroyed our whole race. <laughs> you sets the alcoholic off into a journey of searching for a why and because. He's got to have an answer. He's got to have an answer. People say to him, how come you to get fired, Joe? Oh, because. And the next years, and if he goes and stays around the planet for a thousand years, he'll never find the answer. He doesn't know. We're the last to know. And the war was going on at that time. This is a long time ago. Some of you guys are old enough to remember this. And I went down to the shipyard and bought out of the back door of a union hall, paid good cash for it. I bought a plumber's license out the back door of the union hall, and I went into the shipyard as a master plumber. <laughs> This is a fellow that's never picked up anything, and he's heavier than a pair of scissors. <clears throat> and i got to honestly say to you that I was a fraud. <laughs> Incidentally, I've just retired from my fifth profession, and that was the case in all of them. <laughs> but those days, if you remember this with heart, were the days when you were frozen to your job. What are they saying to me? They're saying to me, you can't quit. They're saying to me. I have a pink document that hangs in my den today, and it is signed by the United States Department of War Labor, and it prohibits me from working within 25 miles of the city of Los Angeles. <laughs> Who can't quit? 
thing that crops up in this journey of alcoholism. I know none of you have ever heard this, you dear Alanons. He says to her, with tears in his eyes, Honey, let's go somewhere else and start all over again where we don't know anybody. What we're saying is where nobody knows us, you know. And this begins a journey of running from always. An alcoholic is always leaving. He's never arriving. And the only wrong thing about taking an alcoholic from place A to place B to help him with his alcoholic problem is doesn't work. The only thing wrong with it is that when you get there, he's there. This is just that simple. Moving him around doesn't help us a great deal. So I go to Northern California and uh, go to work of all places. It seems to me that when an alcoholic goes through our journey, I don't know whether this has happened to you or not, but in my case, every step I took was like this. You ever seen those arrows over the bar rooms out in the country? They're all pointing down. You know that. Ain't a goddamn thing up there. It's all down here. That's the journey of the alcoholic. It seems to me that our choices of things to do become less and less and less and less. And we sit on the bar stool and say to ourselves, tomorrow it'll be different. Tomorrow it's going to be different. It's not going to be like this today. Now to show you the fallacy of that remark is that I guess we're the dumbest people on earth. We get up every morning and do the same thing and expect a different result. We do. Do the same thing repetitively year after year after year and expect a different result. And unfortunately, the result is always the same. I went to work for the railroad. And I'd love to say here that they're a group of the most narrow-minded people I've ever come in contact with. They have a rule about drinking. They say that if you're seen coming out of an establishment that dispenses alcoholic beverages, you can be fired. I wasn't seen coming out very often. If I was, I was flying through the air and <laughs> unidentifiable flying object. <laughs> so here we are. And they have that rule for a good reason, because I guess they figure that if a man's a little addict, they run more than one train on a track. And I never quite understood how they did it. And uh, they frightened me to death. I've sit in the back of a fast-moving pa uh, passenger train with my watch in my hand, just shaking with horror, saying, if I ever get in, I'll quit this trip. And as long as I work for the railroad, I quit every trip up here and frightened. And I know what they thought. 
And one day it happened. In California, we carried our trains. Hey, my buddy's here from Marysville. Where the hell are you? Yuba City. Put your hand up over there. Goddamn mosquito infested country. <laughs> no wonder you're back here. <laughs> they pushed these trains up over the mountains with helper engines years ago, and we used to have two or three helpers on the back and one engine up on the front. When we got to the top of the mountain, we cut the helper engines off. Maybe I can explain it to you. You'll follow this vernacular of the railroad. And we did it at the top of the mountain in a thing that they called an interlocking system. And this system was electronically perfect. And uh, the railroad made one mistake. They hung a sign in their depot. Railroads put out bulletins like the government does. And they put a sign up in their depot in Sacramento with reference to this interlocking system. And you're going to like this. <laughs> they said, it read like this, this system is electronically perfect, they said. And then they let their pants down. They said, it is physically impossible to make a mistake up there. <laughs> I used to walk a block out of the way, going, you know, to get to read that sign. Kind of kept me going, you know. I, wasn't I don't know of any self-respecting alcoholic who wouldn't have had a whack at that one. <laughs> One night, I got two engines going towards one another, and between them were four cars, carrots, apples, lettuce, and celery, and I made the biggest Waldorf salad that's ever been made. And they, they wanted to fire me for that. They're very narrow-minded about it. And it wasn't the fact that I had destroyed thousands of dollars worth of equipment. It was the fact that I'd screwed up their sign. <laughs> and I had another alcoholic representing me at the investigation. <laughs> and we proved an atrocious lie, probably a million to one shot that there was a Mexican track walker going that night swinging a lantern in his hand, and that I had mistaken that for a signal. Now, they never did find the Mexican. And, uh, they gave me 60 days. Now, the old superintendent came out of that investigation, and he was livid with rage. He knew he had been had by a drunk. And he was rather voluble. He said to me, you ought to be arresting for even walking on our right away. And then he said a thing to me that some of our dear Alanons have said to their husbands. I'll get you if it's the last thing. <laughs> Thank you.
struck a guilt there, didn't I? You don't have to get even with an alcoholic. Please believe me. And there is nothing that you can call him or say to him that he hasn't already called himself while he cries into the pillow at night. You don't get even with a drunk. He's got a little thing working in him that if not by some quirk of good fortune, he finds a solution to it, he'll get even with himself. You don't have to get even with a drunk. He'll take care of it. This was the beginning of the end for me. No, it wasn't. It was the beginning of the beginning. And uh, I went on down, got on. People call me. I don't know I've got a name. I'm glad it didn't get up here. I'm glad they didn't put it on the program. It embarrasses me. They call me, they call me wino. Thirty-one years sober, and by God, they still call me a wine. Oh, isn't that respect for you? You know, you shouldn't fuss about wine, though. It has some great medicinal purposes. If there are any medical men here, uh, it'll cure hay fever. Wine will. If you drink it like I did, you're not about to sneeze. <laughs> find out if you do that. I got on the wine quite by accident and I had never heard the expression alcoholism. I'd never heard the expression alcoholic. But believe you me, I'd heard the expression wino in California. And I used to step over them going from my hotel to the depot to go to work. And if I had any compassion at all for these fellows, it was probably the feeling that they didn't have the price of another drink. And little did I know that in three years I'd be laying there with them. If there's one thing that we try to convince the newcomer of, and that is the progression of alcoholism, and it'll move whether you do or not. And I got down physically and threw me in a railroad hospital. We didn't have any places for drunks then. And you know where they put me? In the nervous ward. Which was rightly so, you know. When you <laughs> did that. Oh, hi there. <laughs> and then that was where I was introduced to psychiatry. And uh, they brought in this uh, frustrated piano tuner <laughs> and he would beat on my knees and ask me very, you know, dumb questions, personal questions, and I would give him brilliant answers, you know, that, oh God, yeah. I never will forget, he, he was a rather, well, I can't tell you. <laughs> he asked me one morning, he said, did you ever suck your thumb? And I remember how pale he turned when I said, oh yes, I still do. 
and I graphically described to him how relaxing it is to go off in a, to go off in the corner and take a quick pull at it. You know. If you ever want to get rid of a psychiatrist, and most people do, you let two drunks lay up in bed one night and memorize the same dream to tell him you know, the next further with this hospital thing but except to say that when they shipped a van load of us up to a place called Ukiah you know where Ukiah is don't you this psychiatrist was in the same van <laughs> with us so we got up there you know and they put him in the cell just like they did the rest of us I got on another little delightful dose in there you don't hear about anymore this was before the days of the delightful Valium and whatever Thorazine all the rest of those jolly little things they gave me a thing called sodium bromide elixir this is the granddaddy of Nervine any of you old gals around here know about that patent medicine called Nervine, do you? You know, they used to say, hey, many can't come out today. She's nervous. She was stoned. <laughs> yeah? And they gave me that. It's a hell of a thing. It's got a few side effects. Your eyes will cross. You'll froth at the mouth. But a hell of a good ride. Food doesn't disturb it. And you'll become rather scriptural and talk in an unknown tongue, you know. <laughs> One day, a psychiatrist came to my cell or bed or ward or whatever, and he said to me, you've got to get out of here. I had just about thought I was going to make the winter there. It was a nice place. Food was bad, but good place to stay in the winter. And I had the greatest ambition on earth to become an institutional bomb. And thank God for those people. They dumped me out the door. And he said, you've got to get out of here and let some sick people come in this hospital. I'd been going around cheering up some of the patients, and, and it wasn't good. And this is where we end up. I don't know, I was kidding a while ago about being arrested while thrown in jail. I'm going to tell you a true story, and it's as true as it can possibly be. In a little town where I owned property, a city called Roseville, California, I was literally thrown out of the jail there. An unknowing patrolman picked me up 
one afternoon when I was drowsy and I wanted to sleep. They had the nicest clean cots in there and I could see them through the bars. And I wanted to get in there as quick as I could and the chief of police came in while he was shaking me. And he said, give him his stuff back and get him out of here. We just cleaned the jail. <laughs> I don't know whether this is a social illness or not. <laughs> and I hit the road. I had a little habit. I know none of you have ever done this. And that's... Uh, Always when I got in trouble, I went home to Mama. My mother was well fixed. She had a place to sleep it off. In fact, I had a very delightful childhood. It lasted 38 years. <laughs> and here I am, a man of sorts, man of means of Hollywood and Beverly Hills, the resourceful guy, the smart cat. And I walked back to Texas. Didn't want to go, hated it with a passion. Didn't want any part of it. But you know, there's a lot of things. Someday down the line, you will learn to say, not to say, I don't want to do that. One day you will cut that out of your vocabulary. I don't believe I want to do that, you know. When you get as sick as I was, you'll do anything. So I walked back to Texas to go back to Mama. And it was the exact reversal of the story of the prodigal son. <laughs> they saw him coming from afar <laughs> and threw his butt in jail, you know. <laughs> my, my own mother had this brought down on me. Can you imagine how I hated it? Can you imagine how I felt to come back to this little hick town and all the respect they've got to show for me is put me in the jail. And I seized with bitter hatred. Wasn't my first jail, wasn't my last. But there was something particularly cutting about it. And I remember as our book says, the humiliations and the indignities that we bring with us. And there I was. No answer. Now we won't laugh so much. Let's be serious for a few minutes and talk about some of the nomenclature of our society. I was in there, I do not know how many days, but one Monday morning, there came a fellow from my cell who I had never seen, and he asked for me by name. And if you don't remember anything else I say here today, remember this one word, maybe you can live with it. He came unsolicited. If you ding bats, had waited for me to call you, I might have had to die. I just might have had to die. And he came without anybody calling me. And he ran into, as we have later heard, a rather hostile situation. And he stood there 
and gave me what we've come to know as the pitch of Alcoholics Anonymous. As pure and simple as a mother nursing a child, he did it. Now, what bothered me was why he came. I never could shake it out of me why he came. I'm going to read, reread the first paragraph, chapter 7 of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and it is why he came. He didn't come to see Joe Leaf, he came to see an alcoholic. Or he came to see anybody. But it reads like this. Practical experience shows us that the surest immunity against drinking is intensive work with other alcoholics. And then there's a promise there. This works when all other activities fail. When your prayer group blows it, when your transcendental meditation group blows it, when your sitting and touching group blows it, <laughs> this works when all other activities fail. That is how this society was begun, and I suspect how the bulk of it has been perpetuated. I have listened to people in my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous promised to bring us people by the bus load. And I've been waiting for that bus for 31 years. It has been to me a one-on-one, -on -one, an individual conflict. And there's a great misapprehension about why we go to see drunks. We don't go to see alcoholics because they're alcoholics. We go to see alcoholics because we're alcoholics. And I was taken care of in the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel sometime in 1935, where Bill was in the greatest turmoil that he had ever met in this very doubtful six months of his sobriety. He was going off nuts. And this warped mind of his was like our warped mind. It was playing tricks upon him. And he said to himself, maybe even if I could go into the bar and buy a soft drink, I would make some friends. And suddenly he was drawn up short and realized what he was about to do. And he said, I panicked. And then I thanked God for the panic. And then he said the words that put this society together and tells you why we go see the drunks. Suddenly, I discovered that I needed him more than he needed me. 
that was the beginning of this society of ours, and it has forever, and I hope forever, will be thus. This guy came to see me because he had read the book and read it well, and he was down there to talk to somebody. And I happened to be the lucky stiff that was standing there. This is the reason that I'm here today. Not because my name is Joe Leith, because that guy was going to see somebody because he needed him more than he needed himself. It wasn't a very good encounter. I cut him, you know. I asked him more than once, who sent you to see me? This is who I particularly wanted to hate. <laughs> I went to see an old boy down in Texas not so long ago, and he was laying out on that bed with his sheet rolled up like a pencil. And he looked up at me with those bloodshot eyes and said, who turned me into that outfit, you know? And I know just exactly how he felt. But this guy, after he had passed, are we getting thrown out? <laughs> lost my clock now. Oh God. <laughs> After he saw he wasn't getting anywhere, he gave me a pamphlet. On the front of it was read Slaves of Drink, Find Peace of Mind. This was before we had all that good literature that we've got now. And this literature was written by two losers. And most of the contributions that came to Alcoholics Anonymous in its early days, you'll find two losers for one winner anywhere you look in there. Uh, this thing had been written by a doctor who died drunk and a pillhead I saw the other day flapping around on his ankles. <laughs> and he handed it to me and is unconcerned as if he'd been waiting for a stoplight turned on his heel and said, if you ever need us, cause. With that he went. Didn't Norm say something last night about planting the seed? And I bet you if you would have asked that man when he walked away from that jail, did he do any good, he would have laughed in your face. He said, no, smart ass. <laughs> And I'm going to have to repeat a thing. There is no way that you can do our steps wrong. There is no way you can do our 12th step wrong. But for God's sake, do it. Because... He, in that first paragraph, I didn't quite finish it. This works when all other activities fail. Then we have probably one of the shortest sentences in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't think there are over three in the whole book exclamation marks in our book. And this sentence is very short, and it is, let me use some big words. Unequivocally explanatory. That means any jackass can understand it. You know. 
It says, carry this message to the other alcoholics with no qualification. How are you going to screw that up? <laughs> How are you going to interpret that? How are you going to have a seminar about that? How are you going to set policy about that for God's and that's the reason I'm here today. Well, I didn't follow him. I was too deep in the shell. And he left. And my people are good, substantial citizens down there. They were while they were all alive. And they paid two deputy sheriffs to come to the jail. They wouldn't even let me come home. And they sent my bags down. And these two deputy sheriffs carried me 200 miles to the Houston, Texas, and put me on a train going west. This is what we euphemistically talk about in Al-Anon as releasing him with love. <laughs> there. And they threw me off of that train and took me off in a wheelchair when I got to Los Angeles. I kind of shut up shop in one of the toilets. <laughs> and some smart ass come along and said, we use this car all the time. You can't live in here, you know. <laughs> and when I got up to walk, I couldn't. No, it's never happened to you, you know. You know, really, you just get up and gasp and go to the floor. And they carried me out of there with those three old bags in a wheelchair and dumped me very unceremoniously on the curb. Clancy and I were down there a couple of weeks ago looking at it. He made me show in this very spot where I fell. <laughs> and we stood there and cried for a while. Now, with all the jocular remarks I might make, all the levity, all the fun that we have, and looking back at the ridiculous antics of a poor sick guy, I can honestly say to you, the next five months I lived through hell. There's no description for my next five months. And I ended up under the bridge in Sacramento. And then I... <laughs> I upped my living conditions. I went to a flop house. <laughs> Up yours too. <laughs> One night, I punched my ticket in AA. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. One night I got all of me I could stand. One night I had had it with me. Oh, I had you fixed a long time ago. But that night I had it with me. And I fell out of bed and said the words that it takes, maybe, to effect an entrance into this society. God help me. Nothing more. 
And I suppose that if we were honest, I'm sitting here looking at a whole bunch of people who have used the same ticket. It's a very effective way to get help. I got up and walked out of that damn place and walked 2,600 miles back to Texas to find that fellow that gave me that pamphlet. And I did it the hard way. And I get so damn sick of these people getting up and talking about willpower. Man, you don't come back without a lot of it. I went back to find that man that had given me that pamphlet. And his message was still the same. It was me who had changed. How would you like to tell a dramatic and heart-rending story like I have just told and to discover six months after I was in AA that there was an AA club three blocks from that damn flop house. <laughs> my first AA meeting and I've had to compare all other AA meetings with my first one and uh, do we have another five minutes what time is it oh yeah we got another ten minutes before I get well <laughs> I went to my first AA meeting and and uh I don't know. Those people did their job well. And I suspect, and I want to be very serious here, if there's any responsibility in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, it is what we let him see the first time he comes through the door. And if you've done it wrong or if you have done it right, when he leaves that night, to him, that's Alcoholics Anonymous. And I shudder to think of some of the chances that I would have had in some of the places that I would have gone. These people did their job and they did it well. And I'll quote Alan McGinnis, the little fellow that wrote uh, Members I.V. of Alcoholics Anonymous, wherein he said, I was thrust into an atmosphere completely devoid of personalities. And that's the best way I can describe my AA meeting. Some of these people that I even knew, but I could not attach a personality to them that night. And one night, back in the back of this room, there sat the old sheriff who had locked me up 12 years prior to that time for felonious drunk driving. And he had his pistols on. And he came up after the meeting, and he was a man known for brutality. He would bounce prisoners off of the wall of the jail when I was taken in. Here he was in AA, two years sober. The very symbol of everything that I hated, and he came up and disarmed me. Put his arm around me. And he said, I love you. You stay sober just like I do. What is the transmittal? 
of the understanding of one alcoholic to another. Great philosopher in the year 1600 said that it is a greater feat to jog the understanding than it is to jog the memory. And that night I understood it. That night I was we. Wasn't I anymore. And the loneliness that plagues every alcoholic, as long as he sits on that bar stool and drinks, left me that night and because of you, it has never returned, and thank God for that. Because I think that if the torture of the disease of alcoholism could be described, it could be described in our loneliness that we have. There sat another fellow over to the side, a big fellow, had on a big diamond ring. He was gently puffing on a cigar. And he had one of these serenity things that we get when we get to AA. And he bugged me the whole meeting. Mind you now, I'm not far away from Phenobarbital nor far away from Gallo One. My eyes are a little bit crossed. And I knew I knew him. And I thought, God, where have I seen that guy before? And after the meeting, I discovered I had soldiered with him. Twenty years prior to that time, the last time I had seen him, he was chained to a post in an army camp. That was their treatment for alcoholism. We used to slip him whiskey just to watch him perform. He was a comedian, you know, like a monkey. And here he's sitting at a club, gently puffing on the cigar, the diamond ring, and the serenity thing. And you know what my first reaction was? It'll help him that much will make a goddamn genius out of me. <laughs> I don't know. How long do you work with an alcoholic? I don't know. When I was here, I worked four and a half years with one guy. Found him one Sunday morning. He was drunk. Looked like me. And I borrowed a goblet full of whiskey and poured it down him. I knocked him out, really. And when he kind of came unshuckled from the drink, he was in an AA group. I believe anyway you can get him there, it's good, you know. And he, he, uh, he got sober under my direction by God. Oh, I'd quit cussing, I just recovered all the way by this time, you know. I knew all the answers. And, uh, okay, he'd get drunk every three months. Every three months, just as regular as if you marked it on the calendar. It didn't bother him hell a lot. He was used to it. But for me, it hurt my ego. I was determined that he was going to sober up under my direction. And 12 years ago, he ended up in one of our flop houses down there and took what was for him his last drink and he called another fellow from our club who's not half as smart as I am and he went out and talked to that bastard ten minutes and he never took another drink as long as he lived
I used to sit in the club and look at him and think, you ought to be mine. <laughs> and if I know anything of the treasure that God gave me, I owe him more than he owes me. He kept me sober for four and a half years. <laughs> have a line in our book of experience that we've read here half a dozen times, and it says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. What is our path? We don't elaborate it on it at that point. We go right on and pass it on. What is our path today? Our path is the 12 steps. Our path is the 12 traditions. Our path is making coffee. path is sweeping up. But I guess the greatest part of the path is for me, the cynic and the hater, to stand here and unashamed say, I love you. Thank you so very much.